Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few. How is that journey going for you? Have you arrived? Are you one of the few? Do you want to reach out, share your story, and help the rest of us that are on that journey to live our best lives and reach a point in life where we're living life on our own terms and have the capacity to give back? I am epically excited by today's guest, mostly because it's an area that I'm learning and developing myself. I'm passionately curious about the mind and, and how it works, and particularly when we look at the amount of work and effort it takes to get the things we want in life, whatever those dreams or ambitions are, or if you're a corporate leader, uh, whatever those goals or strategies are that mean everything to you and your organization. Today, we're gonna to talk mindfulness. For some of you, you're probably thinking, my mind is already full, it's full of noise, it's full of garbage, and we're gonna talk about how we create space in there to connect as a more conscious individual or a conscious professional. To do that, we have an expert in the field, an absolute superstar on the podcast today from London in the UK. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Neil, Neil Seligman, mate, thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing your consciousness with the team. I have a quick question. What is a conscious professional? Well, that's a great question. I think the, the bit that I'm pointing at with the whole, the whole brand, the whole name, and you know, I use the word conscious in so many different things that I do. It's about underlying everything that we do in the world of work with awareness. That's really all that it's about. And so, you know, I've always been really interested if as professionals, we can match our outer world excellence, you know, the excellence we use to navigate the world, have meetings, write the report, do the thing within our excellence. And, and that starts with awareness. So that's where the conscious piece comes from. And you personally have a bit of a journey with this, don't you? You started off in that world. I mean, you've always had a an attachment to consciousness as a teenager, but equally, it wasn't as though your first career step was in that field as a professional commercial endeavor. I mean, you started your journey as a barrister, did you not, in sort of civil litigation, personal injury, kind of, you know, to be polite, some might call the ambulance chasing business. They seem diametrically opposed. Uh, law seems to be very structured, detail orientated, harnessing a part of our mind that's very different to the mindful part of us? Or is that just a, is a perception? Is it actually closer than we think? Yeah, I don't see and feel the disconnect, but I absolutely know what you mean. Like what, what I was doing in that field um, was using a different part of my, my being than the kind of the bit that I get to really champion now in my work. But there's lots of overlaps and I still work predominantly with people who are, you know, I do work with a lot of lawyers, but I work with a lot of professionals in all sorts of different industries where they're trying to make that sort of connection between you know, what does becoming more aware, more emotionally intelligent give us in terms of our professional skills and our professional output, as well as as our human 
being self, you know, the bit that goes home at night as well. You know, what, what are the gifts of those things? And if we can increase our awareness and consciousness and bring that into all of the things that we do, like what changes? Like a, that's always a question for people to answer for themselves, not for me to answer for them. But I think it's something to be curious about. So, yeah. Curiosity is such a fantastic word, isn't it? It just means that you're open to any and all possibilities. When you talk about awareness, though, aware is an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, you can be aware of a rustle in the bushes. You can be aware that there's someone who's close to you in the car behind you as you're driving, which is somewhat different to being aware of the space that you fill, aware of your effect on others, aware of the deeper meaning behind things. So when you talk about being conscious and aware, what sort of awareness are you talking about? So I think someone's got to come to this conversation with a bit of an interest or curiosity in, in what this is about. Because when you hear people talking about it on the surface level, it almost sounds like it's nothing. Like it's like, oh, well, what, what exactly is this? Like there's nothing there. Like people talk about being present, being in the now. And, and if you're not if you're not interested in that, like to the degree that you're like, what actually do these people mean? What are they talking about? You're not going to get anywhere with it, nothing. So if we, if we drop below that sort of top level and think about... If I have a genuine interest in increasing my awareness, I'm going to have to start with becoming more curious about my thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Yeah. So if we think about the human eyes point outwards, we kind of see and feel ourselves in the world, but actually our primary environment is internal. You know, wherever we go, day to day, meeting to meeting, place to place, our primary environment is this internal space behind closed eyes. It's, you know, it's always here. And within that space, we have thoughts, our own thoughts, we have our emotions, and we have our sensations, sensations as in physical sensations. I feel comfort, discomfort, hot, cold, sweaty, whatever's going on. And then we might think, okay, well, um, how safe and comfortable do I feel navigating this inner world of thought, emotion, and sensation? To what degree do I experience a sense of safety and control as I'm moving around there? To what degree am I able to bump into the circumstances that arise in my day and to remain centered and stable throughout those circumstances? And to what degree do I bump into things? Let's say I get a scary email from my boss or a difficult client, or I have a conversation at work that goes awry and I don't know what happened, but now it's sitting with me. How good am I at navigating these thoughts, emotions, and sensations that are my primary environment? in order to come back to center, stability, clarity, action. Yeah, so this sort of idea of awareness, being present, all of that stuff, it's like, well, the detail is what's interesting, not those words. It's interesting that you found it so young and had an interest in it. I mean, my journey was very much the opposite. I think I had an awareness in the back of my mind, but it wasn't a conscious awareness of the world around me. And then one day, sort of mid-30s, all of a sudden it was like, oh, hang on you're not the most important thing on the planet and there's more to life than just you and what you want. And you've got to start to think a little bit more expansively. I think for a lot of people, I would say the majority of people, would you think the majority of people aren't quite at a point yet where they are conscious? It's interesting, isn't it? Because to be conscious, you kind of need to be complex. You need, you need to be at a point where you're questioning things, where you're seeking meaning in things. And many people aren't, they're just doing and quite happy. You know, there's that. And I think it's a wonderful phrase. I actually pursued this as a profession myself, seeking ignorance where, where there is bliss. I was just reading an interesting quote today where it was, where it was talking about 
how we see the world we don't see the world as it is we see it as it affects us like it's a very personal perspective and you and i perceive this podcast differently you and i perceive awareness differently we perceive consciousness differently when it comes to this journey and being self-aware and conscious of self that can be a confronting journey can it not i think it is and i think being conscious is not like a tick box exercise like one day you are and one day you're not we're all on a spectrum which is going to be very unique and personal to our life circumstances, to our level of interest in these types of things, and to our kind of goals and ambitions in life and the things that make us happy and joyful and feel purposeful and so on. So, you know, we never come to any of these conversations with any type of judgment, because I know from my own experience that there's a rhythm to the unfolding of our own conscious experience of life. You know, certainly moments where I feel like I've I've accelerated in awareness quite quickly. There's moments where I've fallen back and forgotten things and then <laughs> gone ahead again. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not a direct line from A to B. And I think the world is like that. And we're all on our own version of that in some way. And some people just aren't interested in that. And that's fine. They're getting on with their stuff. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It is uh, each of our own choices, right? And some, I guess... It's often there's been some sort of trigger experience as well, isn't there? There's some sort of loss that's happened, whether it's through death or divorce, or there's inevitably something that occurs in life that has you question why or, or get you to that point. And I think this is a really interesting area to unpack for high-performing people because high-performing people are quite technically competent and they expend their 10,000 hours of practice. They're so focused within their domain and excellent at it. It's not until they become conscious later and realize the damage that they wreak upon the world around them. Let's take it outside the individual. So there's a conversation which is what consciousness does for us, ourselves. But if you were working in an organization, and maybe this is motivation for leaders to look at consciousness, if you're working in an organization and you had a, a leadership group that was 90% aware of self, that had a conscious approach to everything that they did, what would it feel like working in that organization? What are people seeing and observing and how is that enhancing the environment and the output and productivity of an organization? I think what you see in that type of environment, I'm having to imagine a little bit because there aren't that many <laughs> that are working at that level. No, I would true. <laughs> Let's pretend. <laughs> yeah. Then we're really in the space of conscious emergence. Because if you think about a lot of what's happening in a room full of leaders are the tangles of relationship. So tangles of relationship, tangles of hierarchy, underlying waves of blame can be present in that type of room. Grudges can be present in that type of space. There can be a lack of listening present. So we're sort of imagining the opposite of all of that. We've got deep listening presence. We've got a deep sense of welcome in the room. We've got a sense of permission in the people there to show up fully as they are and to not guard aspects of themselves, that sort of armoring that we sometimes do in a corporate environment to exclude aspects of ourselves in order to show up in a more kind of constrained way. So in that sort of space, I think you have all sorts of high potential that it can merge in terms of strategy and problem solving. And it's that sort of thing that I'm super interested in. Like I've always said like that I enjoy teaching mindfulness. I enjoy doing the kind of foundational aspects of preparation, I'd say, you know, sort of internal preparation to 
have an awareness that can then be interested in these other conversations. But it's these other conversations that I'm really excited about. You know, the world of conscious emergence. How do we problem solve in a way that lives outside of fear, in a way that kind of harnesses all that we are, body, mind, being, the whole kind of capacity of the human being. And probably the next chapter of my work is going to be focusing more on this idea of conscious emergence and working with leaders who are interested in that type of space. And yeah, very humbly being on the sidelines, facilitating, coaching people through that type of experience. So yeah, that's where I hope it's headed. You've just preempted my next question, which is we have more awareness of awareness. We have more awareness of consciousness and the whole concept of self. Again, it goes back to, I guess what I was saying earlier. It does seem that very successful people are successful almost because of a lack of consciousness, a bullheadedness and determination that just seems to just bulldoze everyone around us. Or maybe we're just seeing the, the George Lucas analysis, you know, a great movie needs good and evil. Maybe the world needs evil to understand what great good is as well. And, and it might, through adversity, drive a, a more conscious awareness kind of on the, on the other side of the yin and yang. I mean, yeah, I don't know. This is, I mean, this is a really fascinating consciousness. You must look at the world and just go with everything that you know and your own personal experience and just think, you know, like, what the fuck? So I think, yeah, I think for any human looking at the world, there's a bit of a WTF going to be in that mix just from a human perspective, for sure. I kind of look at the world a bit like the caterpillar in the chrysalis stage. Like if you would kind of track the caterpillar, it goes in and makes the kind of chrysalis and then it sort of dissolves itself <laughs> to, if you were going to look in at that point, it would just look like shit, just like a big yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing. I think that's kind of the moment we're in, <laughs> but I think there is a transformational process happening that, you know, extends beyond a human lifetime. So it's difficult for us to track it, mm. but that's kind of a sense I have. Maybe it's just hope is <laughs> maybe, maybe part of it as well, a sort of optimistic hope that, that actually there is a transformational process going on. And even though there are these kind of spikes of what we might sort of look upon as sort of old energies, you know, rising up you know, really poor leaders coming to the fore and, and demonstrating very clearly what poor leadership looks like in order for us to then break through en masse with a sort of new level of, of awareness and a new sort of set of, of processes and tools for, for our problem solving. That's my hope. But yeah, W2F uh, for sure. Yeah, I think, and when you look at the origination of the negative force, I guess, you, you're not seeing that come from people who have a you know, they probably do have a con they probably do have an awareness, but it's an awareness for the sociopathic psych psychopathic awareness, which is the awareness of how to manipulate rather than influence potentially. Yeah, no, I, it's just something I'm really fascinated in in how we can have these two extremes of kindness, awareness, gratitude, and service. And on the flip side, we just have completely self-centered, self-serving, completely toxic type of personalities and cultures. Now you've had the opportunity. I mean, you've, this is a profession for you. This is a commercial practice where organizations and significant organizations have you come in and help their leadership with their mindfulness. What's going on and how does that happen? Like what's going on inside an organization for them to say, you know what, we need a little bit of mindfulness. We need to be conscious professionals. Is it one person in the organization that sees it? Is it like, is it like this collective searching amongst the leadership that there's just something they've got this idea and it's missing like what's the trigger so 
I suppose it's interesting, right? I don't always know the answer to that question. I do find that, <laughs> that my clients, the people that I interact with a lot are the learning and development people, the kind of people who are bringing in programs for training and coaching and things. And I find them to be very aware people and, and very interested in the types of topics that I talk about. And then it's really about, you know, there'll be there'll be some business needs around increasing well-being, about increasing resilience, about, you know, I do a lot of work in communication as well. So how to navigate challenging conversations is one of our big topics. How to overcome imposter syndrome is one of our popular topics at the moment. So it's very rare now that I go in and do a bare coaching or training on mindfulness. We apply the tools and learnings of mindfulness to professional skills to help people overall do their jobs better, express excellence in a reality and their external reality. And so it's much more kind of practical and skills-based, I think, than most people would imagine. And I suppose I draw on my skills as a civil law barrister, but also as I was thinking about what to do next, when I left my career as a barrister, I was training a lot of lawyers in advocacy and negotiation and interviewing and various skills. So I developed a sort of broad range of things that I was interested in and then sort of added in the inner work to it so that we're still working on things which are productive and practical in terms of people's professional experience. They just happen to have this kind of added element to it a foundation of building awareness and emotional intelligence along with those other skills. It's interesting, isn't it? If you're mindful, then all the detail tends to look after itself, but people have to come in the detail first until they start and complete a journey that ends in mindfulness. You know, I think if you're mindful, you communicate better, you're more accessible, you plan better, you're better balanced, you make better decisions. It's quite hard for people to grasp that. And maybe that's a question you can help answer. What is mindful? So I'm not sure if that is your question. Do you mean what is mindfulness or, yeah, I'm not sure what the question is. When we say mindful, if the literal interpretation could be a mindful of stuff, but obviously that's not what mindful means. There's a saying that uh, I remember as a kid, if there was a kid at school that maybe had an issue with walking or behavioral, mum would say, oh, just be mindful, you know, that you're going with Brett today. And that to me was like, hey, you've got to think about him. You've got to be aware and be nice to him and he's got problems. And But being mindful, to me, it was like, you've got to put that thing in your front of mind and be aware of it. There's going to be a lot happening today. It might be sports day. You might be going out for dinner. There's going to be lots of excitement, a lot of stuff going on, but be mindful of Brett. Yeah, before mindfulness became like a mainstream word, the word mindful means meant sort of take care, doesn't it? Take care of Brett it had a very sort of basic, straightforward meaning. The word mindfulness now is the sort of secular rebrand of meditation, which has happened you know, since the 70s and has become mainstream as a way of bringing the Buddhist practice of mindfulness meditation to the mainstream without the Buddhism. You know, so it becomes this sort of secular brain training tool that we can use in all sorts of different environments. And so the, I suppose what's happened to the world, and we're sort of having a semantic conversation now, what's happened to the word mindful, maybe the word mindful has become a little bit more conscious itself. So it's not just about taking care as you might think we're taking physical care. It's about holding something in awareness 
with a little bit more spaciousness, with a little bit more compassion, with a little bit more ease, you know, with a little bit more potential around it. It's kind of that, it's drawing us back into the word awareness, really. So, you know, I like talking about words. I'm a lawyer. Lawyers like words. But I'm not sure if that's getting us anywhere. <laughs> it just creates a, a conversation. And again, it comes down to what we spoke about earlier around perception, where, where a, one person's perception of mindful could be completely different to another one. And what's interesting is, to, I guess, to get a, a professional and someone who's conscious and has it as a practice to kind of help us lay people understand. And, and I'll be brutally honest, like I have toyed and played with meditation for the last 16 years and for me it is just something I don't enjoy doing I really don't at all I've consumed the research on it and that's just me I mean I'm, you know, I'm also ADHD maybe it's just mutually exclusive I don't know you know but I understand the point of it and maybe because just the training in the life I've led I've always I've always created space to think anyway all the time before you act and just it's part of being a fighter pilot and having this way of thinking fed into you from a really young age, 19, and you're just, you're just kind of mindful anyway. But meditation is amazing. Its ability to modify the brain structures is, is well documented. And for you, mindfulness and the conscious professional, a big part of that is incorporating meditation into as a daily practice for professionals. What is it about meditation and why is it such a powerful practice for people? So. I would describe meditation as rather than space or time to think, space or time to be. And that's important because we have a lot of space and time to think. The human brain is optimized for cognitive fullness. You probably noticed as you know, we get drilled with thoughts all the time. Sometimes they're interesting, mostly they're not. If we look into all of the wisdom traditions, each one of them has a practice of silence built into it. So a practice of integrative silence. So some form of sitting and being, or it could be moving and being, or chanting and being, but there's some form of practice where the intentional direction of travel for the human being is, is integrative spaciousness. And so as the, our world societies have in various ways become more secular, we've lost touch with these practices of integrative silence or spaciousness. And as a result of that, when we start to bring it back into the human being and say, oh, actually, there's something in this sitting quietly and observing and witnessing self and doing the, the concentration type of practices where we're purposefully letting go of thoughts and, and allowing ourselves to come back to awareness, come back to some sort of object of meditation we're gifting ourselves these kind of drops of spacious silence and if we haven't had any for a while then starts you know sort of new processes can start happening in the human being again and it turns out that a bit like food shelter warmth water integrative silence is good for a human being and so that's why you see sort of not fully across the board but you see a lot of studies showing oh, it's like when we give people more silence and get them to sit down and be quiet and get them to pay attention in this different way that their different functions start to, to, to work better. And that's because those wisdom traditions that have been around for millennia kind of knew what they were doing, that there's something useful about this, this integrated spaciousness for a human being, whether you have to put a story around it or a belief around it, I don't think you do. I think the kind of secular version of, you know, let's just drop into awareness and hang out there and learn the skill of hanging out in the curiosity of our state of emergent being, you know, something very interesting, I think, about the 
emergent hum of life. You know, they say that, you know, the Big Bang happened, but if you really get quiet, you can feel the Big Bang happening inside you right now. Like the, the emergent dynamism of life is actually vibrating in you right now. And if that's not interesting to pay attention to, I don't know what it's like, you know, to me, that's super fascinating. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? It's in the here yeah. and now. So it's about how do we build a bridge towards these types of practices and make it a bespoke bridge. You know, sometimes, you know, it's sort of one person at a time because it's not an easy thing to land in your life. It took me many years to land my regular morning practice. I have a weekday practice rather than a seven day practice. So I do Monday to Friday. And, you know, it took me many years to land that as something which could be relied upon to show up and wasn't kind of here and gone and you know back again and whatever. So it's not an easy thing, but there's a lot there. And I think for most people, it's going to gift you something. If you haven't had that experience in your life, it's going to gift you something perhaps unexpected. There's a lot of research into thinking and people being left alone with their thoughts and how we transition from that state into an active state. And what I find fascinating about that research is by and large, people do not enjoy being still and they do not enjoy being with their own thoughts. They would rather be busy and they would rather be busy doing things that aren't adding any value. And I guess when these practices emerged, it was a very different landscape for humanity, wasn't it? I mean, you were literally food, shelter, fire, water. That was it. Once you ticked all those boxes, you had plenty of time on your hands. It wasn't an Instagram to go scrolling. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing. And the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. What are the challenges today and how do you find time? Because I would imagine you would hear a lot. I just don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to be mindful. I've got so much to do. And then when I'm at home, I just want to rest. I just want to watch Netflix. I just want to sit on the couch. I just want to chill or I want to go drinking or I want to take drugs. I want to escape. How do you shift from using those coping mechanisms and those tools into mindfulness? Yeah, so I think when I hear the sort of haven't got time type of reasoning, if someone is talking about time, they're actually talking about their priorities because we all have time and we choose what we do with it every single day and every single moment. And so when someone's saying to me they haven't got time, it's like, okay, what I'm hearing is it's not important enough to you to do this. That's fine. I get it. So, But say that then. Say it's not important enough me to do that and then check that out if that's true if you're coaching someone you get them to speak it and then they might be like oh, it doesn't feel true so like, okay well so what's the development from there and i use nudge theory so you know what about two minutes in the morning in your morning routine before you brush your teeth you're just gonna sit either on that chair or that cushion or whatever and just hang out breathing just paying attention to your breath for two minutes why don't you start with that? It's quite hard to sort of resist a two-minute practice because, you know, people, yeah, if you think about it as a kid, no kids like to brush their teeth generally. I've got a two-year-old right now. I can attest to that. It is a nightmare getting that kid to brush his teeth or let us brush his teeth. So very true. Any new habits, tough. So kind of that sort of toothbrushing thing, at a certain point in adulthood, you think, oh, actually, it is a good idea that I brush my teeth maybe twice a day. And that's going to show up pretty regularly. Like if you test a, a big crowd of people, <laughs> most people have brushed their teeth that day. 
And you think, okay, well, how did that happen? At some point, you realize for yourself that even though you didn't like doing that experience when you were a kid, that it's now important to you and you do it. And there's consequences if you don't. It's like, well, what about if we went on that same journey? So if you start sort of nudging yourself to have these little momentary experiences and build them into your morning routine. And then my hope really is that the practice leads the person on. So if they're getting something out of the two minutes, try five minutes, maybe add in a different type of practice or listen to a, a teacher that you like um, and then so on. And you build it up gradually. I don't think we need to be meditating more than 10 to 20 minutes in the morning. If you do five, it's better than doing none. But I think there's something very powerful that happens. There's something very nurturing to the soul and spirit, to kind of your general being when you gift yourself those little moments that happen regularly because it's an unusual part of the day where you get to just check out what's occurring inside you and if you have enough direction to kind of feel like that's not just another stressful moment of you worrying about what's going to happen in your day next because that's another thing that people check out the experience because they sit down and it's just their normal sort of thinking mind to-do list worries happening so if you don't have the skills to know what to do with those cognitions we'll probably find this very frustrating so you do need to do a little bit of training to be able to sit even for two minutes or five minutes and for it to be a not frustrating experience but then it can build from there so you know once once people have got five minutes going They've got enough sort of in the tank, usually for 10 or 15 or 20. And then people, sometimes people get really super interested in it because they might start having experiences in their own consciousness, which are really curious and interesting and insightful and revealing. Not everyone has that, but some people do. And so they might find that, you know, they can drop into some spaciousness and then drop in a question and listen to the kind of response to the ripples of that question in their inner consciousness. And I find those types of meditations really interesting. A lot of my own work, my own creativity comes from doing those types of practices. That's interesting because for a lot of people, they feel that meditation is creating blank canvas, blank space, pushing thought bubbles out of your head and just being in a space where there are no thoughts. I don't know whether you can actually do that, whether your brain has the capacity to have zero thoughts. There's going to be something going on. That's yeah. 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 <laughs> what I just wanted to go back to is you mentioned it took you a few years. So what are some of the things you experienced, like really practical things for someone that might be interested? They're doing their two minutes. It just feels frustrating. What were some of your own journey with mindfulness that might be useful for others? I've put all of my sort of how to meditate stuff into a little course called Zen in 10. And it's a 10 day course, 15 minutes a day which leads you on the path to learn the foundation. So you can sit in silence for 10 minutes and you know what you're doing. So like all of that is jam packed within that. My own experience is maybe a little bit different because when I would sit in meditation, I would be flying around kind of different sort of levels of consciousness. It felt like I would go super deep. I would get too kind of out there. <laughs> I remember going to court one day and um, my opponent passed me a piece of paper and I've been meditating, doing chagun all morning. Um, this is my 20s. And this piece of paper was the most beautiful, illuminated tablet of light that I've ever seen. But I couldn't read it. <laughs> so 
had to take myself into a conference room, literally slap myself around the face. And that wasn't hallucinogens or mushrooms, right? That was definitely just uh, as a result of meditation. Just <laughs> meditation and chagoon. But you know, so I would sometimes go too deep into it. And then I would be up very ungrounded. I've been working with my meditation teacher now for about 15 or 16 years. The first session I had, she basically was shouting at me to get back in my body and to get grounded. Wow. So it was exactly what I needed. She got me weight training. That was the first thing my meditation teacher told me how to do. So, so yeah, so I was always very, it was quite easy for me to go up and out. And it was much more difficult for me to kind of learn to nurture and look after my physicality and the grounded reality, and then to output kind of this connection that I seem to have into life in a way that was useful and practical. So that those sort of two things coming together has become something that's really very interesting to me now. So for we kind of earthbound beings that maybe aren't quite there yet, and still our pieces of paper just look like work, what are some sort of pragmatic tips and maybe some of the things we'll experience when we do sit down for that first two minutes? And what are the things that may happen so we can be aware of it and not become, I guess, disconnected from the commitment to keep trying? What do you normally see early on? Yeah, I think one of the ones, one of the big ones is learning how to not energize thoughts. So if you sit in the awareness of mind, so let's imagine that you could take your mind out and you could look at it in the you know, palms of your hands. There it is. A thought comes in. So a thought will occur to mind fairly quickly, usually. And it might be, it could be something from your schedule. It could be a judgment about what you're doing, like this is nonsense. Now, if we were going to energize that thought, we would add another thought to it. This is nonsense. So my next one, why am I doing this? And then my next one, if I'm energizing it further, is this is a waste of time. Next one is I could be doing my actual work. <laughs> and then you've got this train now and it's, it's going on and it's going on. And then probably the outcome is you stand up and this is rubbish and you walk off. <laughs> so if we were doing the practice of not energizing the thought, so we get the first little train comes in, this is rubbish. And you just watch it go. So I haven't added anything to it because there is a conscious part about the adding the next carriage to the train. So I'm not, I'm purposely not adding to it. I'm like, I wonder which, you know, train comes along next. And so you might notice that another one comes in immediately. It might be the same one. And you're like, oh, this is a conveyor belt <laughs> thoughts. So a lot of our thoughts, conveyor belt thoughts, they're, they're going around on this loop. Like, oh, you might just name, if you're practicing this to start, you might just be like, oh, conveyor belt thought. This is rubbish, conveyor belt. So what you're actually trying to do is sit back in awareness of the contents of mind. I sometimes think about it as thoughts as kind of the furniture of mind. It's like, what's the furniture of mind like today? But it's that sense of I'm, I'm trying to sit back in awareness and look at mind, almost like a third party observer. Another thought comes along, it's like, you know, you've got to get that report in today. And again, I'm doing my best not to energize it. So I have to, so one of the things I've done here is I've given myself permission to not schedule anything, solve anything, remember anything for the next either two minutes or five minutes or whatever we're doing. I'm just gifting myself this unique experience of two minutes or five minutes of observing the contents or furniture of mind. Yeah, so this becomes a different game that we're playing. And from there, so the development of that practice is to start to notice the gaps in between the trains. 
So the gap between this thought and that thought might be a nanosecond. It might be imperceptible. But if we get good at the not energizing and not adding carriages to these thought trains, we'll notice at a certain point there'll be like a little gap, but you'll also be there. So your awareness is there and the gap will be there. And the next train hasn't arrived yet. And this is an experience that your mind is a little bit scared of. Your mind thinks that it needs to be drilling you with thoughts to keep you on track. It's a safety mechanism. And because most of us have trained ourselves into this busy mind equals safety equation, there's going to be a bit of discomfort around that. It's like, oh, I feel a little bit unsafe in thought-free awareness. The mind doesn't know that it's okay there. The mind thinks that that might be an existential threat to mind, but it's not. It's going to be okay. <laughs> so you kind of a little bit of faith that you're going to come out of this okay. But there is this kind of, this sort of flutteriness to, you know, is this okay? And often that will provoke you to energize the next thought or even actively insert a thought like, this is nonsense and I'm off. So there's a lot going on in those little moments. And what we want to do is to feel more and more comfortable when there's trains coming through without energizing them and when there's a gap. And so if we start breathing as well, consciously into those gaps, you might find that you're able to allow those gaps to expand and become more pervasive. And so as that starts to happen, you're now explaining to mind that being in thought-free awareness, mind being quiet, and awareness being curious is a safe and interesting experience for you. And from there, that's a great foundation to really be in the heart of meditation. It's actually a great explanation. And uh, getting tips of meditation from a yogi, where often it's Sanskrit and words you're not really sure of, to have now have it referred to as trains at the station, all of a sudden starts to probably make a little bit more sense to the average professional. Just indulge me for a minute. This is probably a bit off script and not really anything to do with consciousness, but trying to work my way through Anil Seth's book, Being You, around consciousness and the concept of you can only be conscious if you're a being, if you be, and therefore it's not just humans that are conscious, anything that's a thing is conscious and there is no reality. Everything is a controlled hallucination. So in terms of consciousness, what about unconsciousness and subconsciousness? I mean, how does that all fit into the, are these gaps? Is that what we're starting to open up space to access that? Or is that equally as, should we not be going there? I mean, there's all of these autopilots and all of these beliefs and everything that sits in there that generally we don't visit. Is this the time where that we start to visit those or no, we're still just, they're still invasive thoughts. I'm trying to track what the question is in all of that, Boo, sorry. And when we talk about consciousness being something which is a thought, right, which is something that is, it's something that we have awareness of as opposed to a subconscious or unconscious thought where we have no awareness of it. It sits there in the background. Uh, it's that belief driver. It's our cognitive biases. I mean, we don't, in our consciousness, we don't say, well, you know, I have the authority bias on this podcast, therefore that's why I'm over-talking you and that's why I think I'm the bee's knees or the overconfidence bias. They sit there and drive our decision-making, but they're not conscious. In terms of, so, and that's why I'm saying it's a bit off script, is mindfulness purely about the thoughts we control or is it also about the thoughts and the deep darkies and the things that sit behind us that we're not aware of, but are actually driving a lot of our perceptions and behaviours? 
So let's link back to, and I don't know the answer to this question. I will caveat what I'm about to say with I don't know the answer to the question, but I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. That's good. Let's have a stab. Let's just try and see where these go. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes you connect with the knowing inside you and, and maybe something useful pops out. So if we go back to our example, we talked about how tracking our thoughts, making friends with uh, the gaps between the trains, bringing a sense of intentional, compassionate heartfulness to the space, because mindfulness translates to both mindfulness and heartfulness in the Asian languages. So heartfulness is central to the practice, which means that our observation of self is a kind one, a gentle one, it's a compassionate one. So we add in this sort of element of here's some spaciousness, here's some heartfulness. Is it possible that we become more aware or more able to become aware of our subconscious drivers within that type of space than within our busy thinking space? Yes. Is it possible that in those spaces where we are releasing our more rigid sense of our physicality, that we can become more connected to different layers of self in ways that we don't yet fully understand scientifically. Yes, that's possible. If you look at you know, a lot of the wisdom teachers through the ages, they'll be talking about different states of consciousness, different layers of reality and so on, which can be reached through these types of states. Is that the point of mindfulness? Only if you make it the point of mindfulness, you can make the point of mindfulness to chill out, to relax to feel more comfortable with your thoughts, to feel more in control of your emotions. You, know, you can make the point of it, whatever you want to do. But if you're super interested in altered states of consciousness and in the layers of reality, you know, even into things like multidimensionality and all these types of experiences of expanded self or deeper self or however you want to explain it, I don't think our spatial words are very good for this type of conversation. It can be about all of those things. And I think, you know, one of my deep drivers is witnessing the unfolding of human potential. That's really how I got into all of this was my fascination with human potential. My journey started with a fascination in UFOs, aliens, crop circles when I was a kid. And back then in the 80s and 90s, the meditation book and the yoga book were on the same shelf as the UFO book. And so I thought those books were for me. And so I read them and I taught myself how to meditate when I was a kid. So that's how I got into this, but it was really all about human potential. That's fascinating. I have a philosophy, right? And it's a philosophy that's firming up more and more on these podcasts and it's around living a life of purpose and how purpose is something that finds you. You don't, you don't find it. Uh, you, you need to be open to it and your story as a child to have awareness of one thing but for something else to find you in that journey and that subsequently becoming your literally your reason for being is incredibly powerful i think that's an amazing you jump started a question i was going to ask you where did all this come from and that was a really don't you think that's serendipity don't you think that there's just something you know with the complexity of people trying to find a sense of purpose in life that the more you think about it the more elusive it becomes you just need to be kind of open to it so my view on this is the engine of the universe is serendipity and actually, it is our thinking and our ways that we've been trained to think about things, to navigate life, that means that we are almost training ourselves not to drop into the serendipity of life. We actively almost go against it. It's real. It's absolutely real. Call it a coincidence, call it manifestation, but 
there is something that navigates us through our life journey that is intangible, but at the same time, incredibly real. For me, my entire life is serendipity. Like there is nothing meaningful in my life that didn't happen by accident. I'm really interested to unpack this with you because when I work within organizations and when I work within the paradigm of how organizations think they should think, how they think strategy works, how customers work, often you sit there and go, but you're missing the bit where it just, you set yourself up for luck or you're not trying to control the outcome here, which is a virtually impossible. So how do you dial it down? How do you have that level of consciousness? But then you must have seen it studying law, practicing law, having conversations with other lawyers, watching the judgment of others that created conflict between your consciousness and the live world, the, the real world. I think there's two primary things that we don't do so well as a society. So I think firstly, success is the wrong metric. Alignment is a much more conscious version of success. So the problem with success is it's comparative. You're only successful in comparison to something or someone else. Someone has to win. And so you're always going to be in a comparative mindset when you're looking at your success. If you think about alignment, and for me, alignment is alignment between who you are, so your state of being, and what you do in the world. So your state of being and what you do in the world, if there is alignment between those two things, you kind of don't need anyone else to say, well done, or you know, you don't care if someone's got cars or money or whatever than you. If you feel aligned in what you're doing, then the universe is kind of singing with you. And so you're just kind of, that's a nice place to be. And I don't think that's something that gets taught mainly because it relies upon self-knowledge. So this, you know, to, to be aligned between who you be and what you do, primarily you need to know who you be. And because there isn't that much time or patience for allowing people to understand who they are and to sit into that state of being, it's all about, you know, succeed at these exams and then, you know, what's, it gonna, what's the algorithm say you should be and do and so on. And then you sort of on this conveyor belt towards some form of, societal success and we all know those people who may have been very outwardly successful but not happy or content or purposeful in what they're doing so i think that's one of the things we you know as a society we need to learn that success is not really the right metric it, it often success is is at the expense of others as well which is going back to your earlier point about sort of the the play of toxic cultures into the world of business and, and how that leads to our current kind of dog eat dog world eats world type of analysis and then i think the other thing is that we need to overcome our intelligence and become wise and we're taught how to be clever and intelligent but there's almost no teaching at all in how to make decisions with wisdom and it's a different route through the body to wisdom than it is for intelligence. To get to intelligence, we've all been taught this. You just think about this. You go to clever people. You ask clever people about clever things and they come up with their analysis and intelligent answers. Problem with that is it tends to be a bit disconnected from everyone else. It tends not to produce harmonic results in the real world. So the route of wisdom, as taught through traditions, is you start with embodiment. So if you've got a problem or a challenge or whatever, you start with embodiment. So you bring your awareness into the body. Do that by doing something physical. You could do it by doing a practice like mindfulness is an embodiment practice as well. You connect with the heart, which is the most powerful electromagnetic 
organ in the body and also connects us to all things and each other. And then once you've got the body online and the heart online, from there, you can trust the mind to think about stuff. If you get the mind to think about stuff before you've done body and heart, it comes up with all these clever solutions that ruin things. We go through the body and through the heart and then think about things. We can now trust the mind to think about things harmonically and in a connected and compassionate way. And from there, we're much more likely to come up with a solution that is harmonious and based in the energy of wisdom. That's phenomenal and so insightful. You mentioned before being tangled, and I think that is a really great indicator of a lack of consciousness when all of a sudden the stories you tell, the links you create, the journey, and it just starts to become so complex, the white lies, the compromises, and then the whole thing explodes, right? And then you find yourself back connected with who you are. And I think we've all had that journey. Hey, Neil, look, I could talk for hours, mate. I, I think what you practice is fundamental to who we are as human beings. I think to open people's eyes to that awareness and also just to understand that with the amount of, you spoke wisdom versus knowledge and information. And it's hard to find wisdom today because we are bombarded with information and the space to convert that into something that's actionable and insightful is really important. If there was one thing that you would have said to yourself back when you were into UFOs, hunting crop circles, that may have accelerated your mindfulness journey or enabled you to reach more people more quickly to effectively, I understand about being in harmony with the universe, but in the things that you can control, is there anything you would have said to yourself that may have accelerated your journey or, or allowed you to spread the word more broadly, more quickly? I'm going to say no. I trust the journey that I took. I trust all the little failures. I had a feeling you were going to say that. The wrong turns. Because I think without all of them, I would be lacking some of what I have now. And I think that sort of idea of accelerating and reaching bigger, it's like, no, I kind of trust, I trust I'm in the right spot. And, and then I got there in, in a way that, yeah, was, there was no perfection to it, but there was kind of perfection in the imperfection of it all. Yeah, so I would kind of resist the sort of idea of going back and intervening at that point, even though you know there's been lots of little sufferings and failures along the way, as in every human life. But you know, those have enriched my life overall. I just had a feeling that was going to be your answer, mate, and it's a wonderful answer as well to be that comfortable with your journey. Neil, thanks very much. I am going to be in London very soon. I'm even more motivated now to come and share a coffee with you and uh, explore this a little bit more. Zen in 10 is Neil's program. Google it. I did. It comes up. You'll find it. Neil, anything else you want to share before we close out this exceptional podcast? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, just, you know, if people are interested in, in reading a bit more about my, my type of work, my book, Conscious Leadership, is available online. So um, that might be another one that's a way in for some people to some of these ideas in, in practical ways. Awesome. As per usual, Neil's details will be down below in the show notes. You can find him and I encourage you more than anything just to really start that journey into your own mindfulness. Neil, thanks again. Wonderful to have the opportunity to speak to you. Thanks for coming on The Few. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few and I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support 
by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.